Thank you, our Father, for a worthy Savior. We're moved to tears as we contemplate the King of glory setting aside the rights and privileges that were due Him in heaven. Not setting aside His deity, but setting aside His exalted position in heaven and coming to earth and taking the form of a real man. True God and true man. That He might become a slave and a servant. And that He might go to the cross that He might redeem us. This is our King. This is the glorious one of heaven. This is the one we worship. And it is no empty worship, for He truly is worthy. And over the next weeks, as we consider Christ the King, might we be moved in profound ways to a worship we have not known before and a gratitude that we have not known before and a reliance and a trust and a dependence and a satisfaction in Christ, our magnificent King. Might you give us a picture of Him this morning from this Word? Might you give me accuracy as... I unfold it, and might you give us transformation as we hear it, and might you make all of us, myself included, to be confident, bold, and strong in this wicked world because of the one who is our King. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior, amen. The last hundred years or more have seen some of the most atrocious leaders and dictators in the history of the world. Adolf Hitler ruled Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s and was responsible for the incarceration or death of between 15 and 20 million people during the Holocaust and was responsible for a total of 50 to 80 million people dying in World War II. Joseph Stalin's name meant man of steel, and he was the epitome of harshness and brutality, responsible for somewhere in the neighborhood of the death of 20 million people in his dictatorship in the early 20th century in the USSR. In four years, as the leader of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, Pol Pot was responsible for the deaths of about two and a half million people, one fourth of his of his country's population. Leopold II was king of Belgium from 1865 to 1909. Under his leadership, Belgium took control of the Congo in Africa and routinely tortured, amputated, and killed in his quest to amass a fortune in ivory and other natural resources. Some 10 million Congolese died under his reign of terror. 
And we haven't spoken of Vladimir Lenin, Idi Amin Dada, Kim Il-sung, Ho Chi Minh, Saddam Hussein, Mao Zedong, Robert Mugabe, Muammar Gaddafi, or a host of others. The legacy of kingship and rulership in this world is abysmal. I'm here to declare to you this morning, we have a different king. The book of Matthew unfolds for us the presentation of Christ, the king. And he answers this question for his readers in Israel. What kind of king is this Messiah? What kind of kingdom will this Messiah establish? The kingship of Christ is Matthew's repeated emphasis. Just, just listen to a few ways that Matthew identifies Christ as the king. From the very first verse of his book, the kingship of Christ is asserted. He writes this, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, that is, the king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Messiahship or the kingship of Christ is also alluded to in nearly the last verse of the book. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth. And who has all authority but the king? The Magi affirmed his kingship. Where is he who has born, been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him, the king. John the Baptist declared the arrival of his kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is the very same message that Jesus articulated at the beginning of his ministry. Chapter 4, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached his kingdom. Not only at the beginning of his ministry, but throughout his ministry. For instance, chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The king has come. Chapter 10, verse 7. He instructs the disciples, as you go, as he's sending them out to Israel, he says, as you go, preach, saying... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of Jesus has arrived. Israel's leaders, and ultimately at the end of this book in chapter 27, when they shouted for Barabbas, all of Israel rejected the kingship of Christ. The leaders of Israel did it in a most horrific way. Chapter 12, verse 24, the Pharisees heard the declaration of Jesus to be the Messiah, the son of David. They said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. He is no king of ours. He is a king of Satan, was their decision. And so Jesus withheld, after that point, his kingdom messages, message from them. Chapter 13, the disciples said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? 1311, Jesus answered, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. You, you may know about the coming kingdom, but they may not because they've rejected the king. At his transfiguration, Jesus revealed something of the glory of his kingdom. Chapter 16, 
verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up on a mountain by by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. The King in His glory is revealed to His disciples. And the most important statement by the disciples about Jesus affirmed His kingship Chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. Over 80 times in his gospel, Matthew refers to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, or the King, and to the coming of the kingdom of God. He is presenting to a Jewish audience the promised Messiah, the promised King of Israel, and the promised King of all people. Matthew's emphasis is on the covenant, on the fulfillment of the covenants to Israel. So when we hear these words, kingdom and king, in Matthew, we can think ultimate kingdom or the millennial kingdom. As, as, as Matthew talks about the coming of the kingdom, he's thinking about the coming of the king, the Messiah, to sit on the Davidic throne and rule on this earth in his millennial kingdom. But he is also revealing in this book what it takes for an individual to participate and be part of that kingdom. Jew, primarily, but also Gentile. And how does God care for the people of his kingdom? And in that sense, this book is personal and for us. How can anyone who is unrighteous be rightly related to God? And being rightly related to God, how should we live? Over the next few weeks, leading up to and including Christmas and the Sunday after Christmas, we're going to look at this great king who is infinitely better and infinitely greater than the best worldly king. Today we start with one of Matthew's first presentations of Christ as King. It's also Jesus' longest recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we are looking specifically this morning at the introduction to that sermon in which Jesus declares that Christ is a King who rules to bless His subjects. Of all the kings in the world, there is one who is superior to all and rules over them all. It is Christ the King. And of all the kings in the world, this one king alone lives to bless his people and his subjects. It is the King, Christ Jesus. Let me give you another context for which we might understand this passage. And that's the understanding of Christ's kingdom And the blessing that he comes with. You're familiar with this passage, I trust. In fact, we've heard this passage preached as recently as this summer. Eric Zeller preached it when he was here for us earlier this summer, three or four months ago. And the focus of that passage that is before us is the little word blessed. It's that that Eric unfolded particularly well for us that Sunday and I'm grateful for his ministry to us. That word blessed means something like fortunate or to be envied, blissome, joyous, happy. It is the opposite of to be cursed. 
So whatever you think of blessing, it is the opposite of cursing. They are antonyms of one another. This person who is blessed is someone who has been favored with a graced position. And Jesus' introduction to this great sermon is to focus on the blessing that comes to those who are His. Who serve under His kingship and recognize Him as King of the great kingdom. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want to take a little bit different approach to it than what Eric took a few weeks ago. And I want to think about the differences between Christ as king and all other kings. And there are two particular differences that are, I think, alluded to and then expanded upon in this passage. First, when other people, other kings provide for their people, they seek to provide for their physical welfare. But these provisions from Christ the King are for the spiritual welfare of His people. His blessing is not for the superficial feeling of well-being based on a circumstance, as John MacArthur says, but it is the provision of eternal gifts that transform our inner lives and give us a permanent standing and fellowship with God. He gives a blessing that cannot be taken away and never degrade. What I particularly want you to notice this morning is a second difference between Jesus as king and all other kings. It is something that is commonly overlooked in these verses. And that is this. The people that Jesus says are blessed do not bless themselves. Their blessing comes from outside of them. Their blessings are also not simply the natural result or natural consequence of doing something nice. If it's your birthday today, I might give you a gift and say, happy birthday. And you would respond and say, well, thank you. That was kind of you to do that. And that expression of gratitude would be a natural response to a gift. That is not what Jesus is intending us to understand in these verses. The blessing is a gift. And from whom does the gift come? It comes from the king. Now think about that. That is entirely upside down. Of the way the world works. Kings do not give blessings. They take blessings. They exact taxes. They compel service. They force labor. They demand subservience. They don't give anything. Even when kings send you stimulus checks in the mail. We know, don't we? It's really not a gift. They're just shifting money from your right pocket to your left pocket. It's not a gift. It's a take. But the King of glory gives gifts. He gives himself and he gives gifts. 
And this morning, I want us to see some of the overwhelming gifts that he gives as a blessing and a grace to those who are his people. Jesus Christ is a king who rules so that in order to bless his subjects. Jesus turns the idea of kingship upside down from the way the world has it. The king who is worthy of worship comes to serve his subjects and to bless them. And in this passage, we will see Jesus revealing eight gifts from the king for his people. Each of these blessings begins with an attitude or an action on the part of the worshiper. Blessed are those who... And while there's value in looking at what the believer does, Eric did a great job for us doing that a number of weeks ago. For our purposes this morning, I want to pay particular attention to the gift that the king gives for those who rightly belong to him. What kind of gifts does the king of glory give? Number one, our king blesses us with kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 3 Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Jesus is not commending here physical poverty as a virtue, though that is a common interpretation. He says that people are blessed when they are poor, not in physical means, but in spirit, internally. And we recognize that when he says in spirit, he's referring to the inner man, the heart, the soul, the conscience, the spirit, the desire, the will, the want of a person. And he's saying internally you are blessed when you recognize that you are internally destitute. You have a total inability to please God and be in right relationship with him. Only when you are in that condition Are you in a place where you can receive a blessing from the king? This kind of recognition that we are poor in spirit is recognized in the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I have nothing. That's the person that is positioned to receive a blessing from the king. What do you do when um, you're walking around Granbury or perhaps you're driving through the streets of Fort Worth and you see someone who's down on their luck, so to speak, homeless, wandering, looking for a handout. They've got a sign, we'll work for food. And your car stops right next to them. They tap on your window. What do you do when you see someone, obviously, that has a need? Well, if you're you're my wife, you roll down the window and you grab the bag that you prepared in anticipation of such an event and you hand them a lunch. Or maybe you reach into your wallet and you pull out a few dollars or a five dollar bill and you give it to them so that they can buy a meal. Or maybe if you're walking through the streets, you say, hey, brother, I, I, I can't give you any money, but here's what I can do. I can take you to get some food. And you walk down to Whataburger and you buy him a hamburger and French fries. If you're generous, you give something, don't you? What is the king 
do for those who come to him empty-handed and destitute. I have nothing. And I recognize that even if I will work for food, it won't do me any good. I can't work to please God. What does he, what does the king do for those who come empty-handed? He doesn't give them something. He gives them everything. Notice, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice he says, theirs is? It is their possession. They belong to heaven and heaven belongs to them. The kingdom, says one writer, is precisely for them. That is, heaven was made, the kingdom was made for people just like this. Broken, empty, destitute people. God, to them, gives the infinite, unparalleled riches of glory. Jesus blesses them with a kingdom that keeps us from the king's wrath that we deserve. So the king does have a wrath, doesn't he? And instead of pouring out his wrath on us, Jesus removes us from his wrath and places us into his kingdom. And gives us all the treasures of that kingdom. Whatever, whatever treasures we don't have on earth will be surpassed when we get to the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like? Here's what John says about it. I, w- I was thinking about this this week. Now, we, we don't know. This is absolute conjecture. This is like way deep in the, in the white spaces between the text. But I wonder, as John wrote this, was he thinking back to Jesus' first instruction of the disciples? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is that kingdom like? There will no longer be any curse, Revelation 22. And the throne of God, that's the kingdom And of the Lamb, that's the King, will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They shall see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. I am His. And He is mine. Whatever we don't have on earth, brothers, you have something coming in the kingdom of heaven that will be infinitely, eternally satisfying to you. Notice also that Jesus says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a present tense. They have it now. They belong to Him now. The kingdom is possessed by them now. There's a sense in which the kingdom is still coming. Christ will yet rule from his millennial throne in his kingdom. That's still coming. But there is a sense in which we experience some of the blessings even now. In fact, notice he says, verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Skip down to verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Same phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Those two phrases, Jesus at the beginning of the Beatitudes and the end of the Beatitudes uses a present tense. Everything in between is a future tense. It's looking forward. This is what's coming. And it's almost as if Jesus is bracketing, to use the fancy word, inclusio, using an inclusio to say, from beginning to end, everything in the kingdom is yours now. It's available to you. It is accessible to you. Says John Stott, the kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children, humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. Brothers and sisters, we have a king who showers us when we believe in him with the greatest treasure of eternity. It's ours. He blesses us with kingdom. Watch this. He blesses us with comfort. You do not have to live very long before you are acquainted with grief in this world. When our children were young, um, to love Regine is to have animals around the house. It takes great restraint that we don't have chickens and goats and ducks and geese and camels and cows and every other beast known to man. I could restrain her from those things, but we had to have a dog. We had to have a cat, multiple cats. And when we got the first cat, I didn't think much about it. And then, if I'm remembering the sequencing right, the first cat disappeared and didn't come back. And where we live, um, we can hear coyotes at night at times. And I just kind of figured, I think I know what happened. We got a second cat, and we didn't have that cat very long before I found it one day in the backyard, dead. You bring that little kitten, three, four months old, to the kids, and you bury that kitten. And they just, they just cling to your neck, don't they? Just almost inconsolable with grief. So broken heart. I'll never forget that. This world is full of grief, isn't it? People die, pets die, relationships are broken, loved ones get sick, sins are committed against us, and we grieve over those things and hundreds of things more. That is not what Jesus is talking about in verse 4. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. He's not saying, blessed are those who mourn over the sorrows of this world. He is saying, blessed are those who mourn over the sorrows of their hearts who recognize, verse 3, that they are absolutely destitute before God. They have nothing that they can bring to God. And that brings them to deep, almost inconsolable grief. I am a sinner that sits under the wrath of God and I deserve only one thing from Him and that is His eternal punishment and condemnation. And that breaks our heart. And it is to that grief 
that the king gives comfort. The greatest comfort we need is for the greatest grief over the greatest problem in our lives. Listen, our comfort is not in our grieving. Our comfort is what we receive from God in response to our grief. To meet us in the need for our grief. And while we anticipate the comfort of Christ's kingdom and ultimately heaven, and the older I get, the more glorious it looks to me. I can't wait. We experience the comfort and forgiveness from Christ for our sorrows over our sin even now. So Jesus says, chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, the King, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What I do not want you to miss is where this comfort comes from. It comes from the King. The exalted second member of the Trinity comes down from heaven to take care of our problem of sin. And He administers forgiveness to us. Remember Jesus on the cross? Matthew chapter 27. What did Pilate write on top of the cross? And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him, Matthew twenty-seven thirty-six, And above his head, they put up the charge against him. There's irony, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They thought they were killing the King. And the King was saying, I win. This is my provision for your comfort in your grief. And if that is not enough, that the second member of the Trinity would come to earth, that same king provides the third member of the Trinity to be with us for the particular purpose of comforting us. That's his name, comforter. And in our grief, Over sin, He comforts us. And if that is not enough, the same King sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us in our prayers so that we will receive just what we need and be comforted. And if that is not enough, the same King promises to return for us and take us home to be with Him eternally. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, then we who are alive, verse 17, and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The king is our comforter. In fact, not just the king, Jesus Christ, if you're listening you caught that it is the entire Trinitarian Godhead who comforts us. 
Our problem is our brokenness from sin. And the king who is unafraid to associate with sinners comforts us. Our king blesses us with inheritance. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. That word gentle might be translated meek. Has the idea of humility. It's a recognition not that people are inherently weak, but that people are even strong, yet they are quiet and tender-hearted. One Greek dictionary explains it this way. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting, it does not fight against God. Compliant, if you will. Tender. Gentle is a good word. Not weak. Gentle. Quiet. The gentle person is brokenhearted over his lack of ability to bring anything to God that will commend him to God. That's verse 3. He recognizes his sin nature. That's verse 4. But he recognizes not only that he has a sin nature, but that he is also a sinner. He personally sins. And he is not defensive against God. He is not combative with God. He is not argumentative to God. But he submits to God's authority over his life. And what does God do? These ones shall inherit the earth. The dominion of the king is given to the worshiper. That old phrase, they will inherit the earth, might come from Psalm 37, verse 11. Don is looking at that psalm this week and next week in his class. And there is suspicion that perhaps Jesus was quoting that psalm. If you think back to God's purposes for mankind, God's purpose was that man would, when he created him, Genesis chapter 1, that man would rule over the earth And in Genesis chapter 3, sin intrudes and our rulership goes askew. But salvation restores that. And ultimately, in the kingdom, God's people will rule over this earth. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat on them the followers of Christ. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those who were cursed now become those who reign alongside Christ in His kingdom. We are those, as we saw in Romans, the first three chapters repeatedly over and over, we we are a people who are born under the curse and sin was our master. As people who are reborn under Christ the King, we will be masters of this world 
and fulfill the role that God designed us to have in the original creation. If you will, the king is sharing his responsibility with his people. Oh, brothers and sisters, are you seeing the grace of this king towards us? Those of us who were rebels against his authority in our sin have been given an inheritance to rule and reign alongside him. Our king blesses us with kingdom and comfort and inheritance. Fourthly, with satisfaction. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What do you want? What do you want today? It's 1135. I can't quite hear the moan yet, but I know there's rumbling out there. Some of y'all's stomachs are turning. And what you had for breakfast isn't quite taking you as far as you thought it would. And you're ready for lunch. And you're thinking, where are we going? What's in the refrigerator when I get home? Some of you are thinking, I'm okay on food, but I really could use another little dose of caffeine right now. I wonder if there's going to be some coffee left over in the hospitality area when we're done. Or maybe a little water. Some of you are looking forward to work tomorrow, a meal with friends this week. What are you looking for? What do you want? Just about everything we want in this world is destined to fail us. Food will last, oh, four to eight hours. Water, one to two hours. Some good fellowship, a day or two. Satisfaction from our sinful desires, pretty much negligible, isn't it? And Jesus says we should have one great yearning for one great thing, and that is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To yearn for a righteousness that we are incapable of providing on our own, to have a desire for being righteous that is beyond our own capability to produce. Remember, we're destitute. We can't do anything. And what does Jesus says the king will provide for them? They will be satisfied. Sometimes when we eat something, it, it entices us to want still a little bit more. The other night, Friday night, I made some grill, some, I made some grills on our steak. I made some steak on our grill. And, um, and they were okay steaks. I mean, they were, they were decent, but they weren't great. So as I'm cutting into my steak, I'm finding, you know, little places where there's some gristle and it tasted okay, but you kind of had to work around it a little bit. And I, I saved a nugget right in the middle that I knew was going to be tender and juicy and just the perfect medium rare, which is the only way to eat a piece of steak. And I ate that piece of steak and I said, I could, I could use a little bit more if only there were some. And I looked at Regine's plate and there was still some. <laughs> but I'm nicer than that on a few occasions and I didn't dive in. And sometimes when we want something and we get it, we have this yearning for just a little bit more, right? Was it Rockefeller who said how much money, who was asked how much money is enough? And he said $1 more. I just want a little bit more. And when the king comes to meet the longings of your heart, notice what it says. You will be satisfied. The idea of that word satisfied is exactly what I've been talking about. It, it's this idea that I want a little bit more and he gives it so that I'm satisfied and content. 
Isn't that sweet? And oh, by the way, this is the king feeding his subjects. That turns it on its head, doesn't it? You know, some people get to a position of power and authority. They climb the corporate ladder and they get to a place and now people come and wait on them. Not so with the king of glory. The king of glory waits on his people and serves them. Brothers and sisters, might I also remind you that we need to remember that there are a lot of God's substitutes in this world, idols and places of refuge and places of comfort and desires. And brothers and sisters, only Christ the King will satisfy you. Everything else is vanity and empty. It will not bring you comfort. It will not bring you hope. It will not bring you the refuge that you are desiring. That's why the psalmist says what he does. Psalm 73. Listen, Psalm 73, start in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Go to the King, and He alone will comfort and satisfy you. He blesses us with satisfaction. Fifthly, He blesses us with mercy. When we are broken with sin and been satisfied with God, verse 7, we will be merciful to others. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who withhold wrath and judgment and condemnation and bitterness and evil towards others that might even at times be justified and instead give mercy and grace and kindness gentleness. This verse is not teaching that we we merit mercy that comes from God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He's not saying if you are merciful towards others, then God in turn will be merciful to you. In other words, we merit, we earn mercy. But he is simply saying that we are demonstrating that we have received mercy from God when we give mercy towards others. When we are forgiven, we give evidence of forgiveness by forgiving others. When we have been given mercy by God, we give evidence to that reception of mercy when we are merciful towards others. I saw an old friend this week over at Grumps. I was eating a salad, not a steak, woefully. He came over to the table where Keith and I were eating and said, Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing well. Exchanged a few comments. I don't know what brought it up, but he was talking about his position. He's a he's a justice of the peace in Hood County, and he was telling us that occasionally um, he wears a, a county issued shirt, and it says "Judge" right here on his shirt pocket. And he had one person that came in front of him in the courtroom one day, and I guess the guy might not have been quite so bright. He sarcastically asked, um, "So." So what is that? What is that judge for? Is that to remind you who you, who you are? And he said, "No, it's to remind you who I am." 
Standing before a judge is an awesome thing, isn't it? You ever stood in a courtroom before a judge? I have. Fear and trepidation. I've served on a, I've served on a jury. Really glad that I wasn't standing in front of the judge for that case. What's it like to stand before the King of glory as our judge? Terrifying. But this King, when we are in right relation to Him, He gives us mercy. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. And He holds it back. And He says, let me give you grace. Out of my grace. Such is our king. Our king blesses us with mercy. Verse 8. Our king blesses us with God. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. One of the great longings of mankind is to see God. You go through the scriptures and you find that theme repeated over and over. Moses wanted to see God. Job wanted to see God. David wanted to see God. Stephen. Paul. They all wanted to see God. But sin precludes us from seeing Him. And seeing Him when we are in our state of sin becomes a terror to us as as Isaiah rightly recounts in Isaiah chapter 6, right? I am am a man, man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I can't stand before the King of glory. Sin precludes us from seeing Him. But when we are pure in heart, and by the way, how do we get to be pure in heart? He makes us pure. He gives us the ability to see God. He gives us the ability to do that which no man has ever done and lived. We see glimpses of what he is like now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. But then we will see him clearly. He has already invited us into fellowship with him. That's 1 John chapter 1. But the king has almost also promised to be the one who is Emmanuel. God with us. And so He will be with us eternally, which is what Jesus the King promises to the disciples at the end of this book. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I, parenthesis, the King, am with you always, even to the end of the age. The King is with you. You ever start a new task and said... Well, I know I've been trained to do this, but I just wish the person who trained me would be here with me so I could do this with them looking over my shoulder just one more time. We've all been in that place. The first time you go to discipline your child and you say, I wonder if I'm doing this right. Where are mom and dad to show me? And you feel that way as a believer. Brothers and sisters, the King is with you. He doesn't send some lackey to come alongside. Maybe he can help, maybe not. He comes himself. The King has chosen the peasant who was his enemy 
and come alongside and brought him to the banqueting table of the king. That's the wedding feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19. It gets even better. The king blesses us with God. And our king blesses us with sonship. When we are in Christ, we become those who pursue reconciliation with others. The God of peace who sent the Prince of Peace, who also sends the Spirit of Peace to give the fruit of peace to His people and make us to be peacemakers does something for us who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, we love the truth of adoption, don't we? It's a joyous reality that we are in God's families with all the rights and privileges that come from belonging to God. And we saw that in in Romans chapter 8, and we see that in Galatians chapter 4. But, But listen, my friends, this adoption is not just to any family. This is adoption into the king's family. Several years ago for our 30th anniversary, Regine and I went to England. Something we had wanted to do for a long time. We spent a week in London. And what, you know, walking, doing the tunnel, doing, doing, or doing the subway and, 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 and doing the, um, the bus and sitting on the top of that double decker bus and all around the city. Several times we drove past Buckingham Palace and we'd watch. Is the flag up? And I would turn to Regine and say, Hey, Lizzie's home. Let's stop by and see her. What do you think? You think Betty's going to let us in? It's sacrilegious even to talk about her like that, isn't it? She's not letting us in. Are you kidding? Rebels from America? Not a chance. But the king, who is eternal and infinite in the heavens, says, come to me, family. He doesn't just let us in as peasants. He lets us in as his beloved children. This is the king of glory. One last thing that he blesses us with, and that is with reward. Blessed are you when, excuse me, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. When we follow Jesus Christ, not everyone will rejoice with us. Some will persecute us. They will attack us because of righteousness, because of the righteousness they see in us, because of our identification with Christ's righteousness. And, and they hate Christ. And so they will persecute. And the blessing that comes to those who are in that position is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I noted earlier, that's the same phrase as verse 3, the present reality for sufferers of the king is that they already are experiencing kingdom blessings. But Jesus expands that idea of coming into the kingdom. He talks more in verse 11 about what the persecution is that you might receive. You will receive insult and persecution. People will falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
because of Christ, because of your identification with the king. And he says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why? Here comes a blessing. Your reward in heaven is great. Now, Jesus isn't specific about what that reward is. Part of the reward certainly is the glory of heaven and the alleviation of our temporary, our momentary, our light afflictions on this earth. It's akin to our salvation. We we get salvation and freedom from sin fully. But beyond that, there are also rewards to be gleaned from the king. I remember when I was preaching through John many years ago and I got to chapter 12 and I was just stunned by this phrase. It's like I'd never seen it before. 1226, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. Okay, I go where Jesus goes. That makes sense. He's the leader. I'm the follower. If he dictates, I follow. If he dictates, I command. Makes sense. Listen to this. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. (laughs) Stunning. The Father will honor. It's akin to what Jesus says here. Your reward in heaven is great. The great king gives gifts to those who are his subjects and his slaves. And here we come full circle to where we began. Here is a remarkable king who doesn't take but gives. Here is a sovereign who saves. Here is a potentate who is paternal. Here is our God. And here is our King. Just remember though, all these blessings are only for those who belong to Jesus, who have renounced faith in their own self-righteousness and placed faith in Jesus Christ to save them. How do you do that? How do you trust Christ? Well, the Beatitudes have told us. We renounce our self-will, our self-work. We recognize, verse 3, that we are poor in spirit. We recognize, verse 4, that we have nothing to bring God on our own and that we are sinners condemned and we grieve over that. That leads us to being gentle and meek before Him. We're not argumentative to Him. And we begin to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that only He can provide. And when that is our yearning, that is what He gives. And brother and sister, friend, if you are not in Jesus Christ today, if you have not placed your faith in Him, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if Jesus Christ is not your King, may I submit to you that you must repent. And place your faith solely in Him. And then, if He is your King, delight in Him. For this great King is not your enemy. This great King will do you no harm. He is working for your benefit, which is also His glory. Our Father, we thank You for our King, Jesus.
our Savior, our Master, our Sovereign, our Friend, our Husband. We are worthless, have been made worthy by the only one who is worthy, brought into and adopted into the family of God, and made the bride of Christ. What a great king. Father, all kinds of things are pulling at us this week to lead us to despair and despondency and frustration and anguish, anxiety, fretting and anger. Oh, Father, might this passage of the gifts that come from the great king of glory be a magnificent comfort to us this week as we rest in Him, the King of glory. In His name we pray. Amen.